0: recovery elevator episode 127
1: because the disease is in full function and you're feeding an endless cycle that knowledge alone can't break
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul churchill thank you so much for joining us according to the recovery elevator sobriety tracker on my phone at the time of this recording i've been sober for 1040 days On today's podcast, we've got Pete. He's been sober for 488 days at the time of this recording, and he's 38 years old. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. Rule number one of podcasting is plug in the microphone. Pete, my bad. You did me a solid. You recorded an awesome interview. On my end, I forgot to plug in my microphone. I apologize. That's okay, though. In fact, that's why Whiteout is a billion dollar industry because mistakes happen. What's the number one key on a keyboard to fail? It's not the space bar, which you'd think, it's the delete key. So I made a mistake. I'm sorry, Pete. And for that, after your interview, I'm going to go into further depth in your interview and cover some awesome points and topics that you make. So we are going to switch things up a little bit in this podcast episode. We're going to hear from Pete first, and then I'm going to go after that. So recovery elevator i'd like to welcome pete to the podcast pete how are you good
1: how are you doing today
0: paul i'm doing great thanks for asking pete let's get right into this how long have you been sober
1: 488 days
0: nice job who's counting well i guess that would be you pete how, how's that feel oh
1: uh, it feels good feels uh clear clear, clear clarity it's good
0: yeah, that's a really good word to describe that. And before we get any further, Pete, give listeners a little background about it yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and Pete, what do you like to do for fun?
1: All right, I am 38 years old. Golfing is really my favorite leisure activity, and I spend time with my family. I got an eight-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son, and... Next month, I will be married for 15 years, so outside of family, yeah, golf's really the thing I like to do the most. And hiking, I am in sales. I do construction sales, and I travel mostly around the state of Ohio and the surrounding states for work.
0: Fantastic. Now, I got a question about golf, Pete. Is that one of those things that before you got sober, you're like, am I still going to be able to golf? Because I know a lot of people drink while they're golfing. Was that a tough transition for you?
1: It definitely was weird. Not only did I do a lot of drinking on the course, but I did a lot of entertaining for work with clients.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. A lot of my clients really didn't care about golfing as much as they did drinking and partying on a golf course, but it was an excuse for them and justified bad behavior because they were on a golf course for work so yeah it was a transition and I was kind of scared about that but turns out like everything else it is totally acceptable and really fun to do sober
0: nice yeah that's uh that's good to hear because I have talked to a couple people who golf and they're like I, I just don't know if I can do this sober but you you said it you can do it nice job and have, have you seen an improvement in your golf game
1: I still don't golf enough but i enjoy it more there's not the frustration the anger Uh, i can actually just be present in the moment and actually golf which is very different than my old behavior where golf was just again an excuse to be out there with people and my scores might not be better but it's a lot more enjoyable now that's for sure
0: there we go And let's back it up a little bit, Pete. When you were drinking, did you ever have any rules in place? You know, like, I'm not drinking before 5 p.m. And tell us more about your drinking habits, things like that.
1: Oh, yeah. I always had rules. My life, I've been surrounded by a lot of people in addiction and alcoholism. So I always had a rule that I would never drink in a fashion that would get me to a place where I had a problem with alcohol. And some (laughs) of those rules would be like, at one point, you know, that switching up, I'll only drink beer and then I'll only drink liquor and then liquor got to be a problem. So it was back to beer and then I would only have so many beers. But then that rule changed where I was only drinking high alcohol beers. So I could keep my number down, but the alcohol intake would be up. And then I guess if you drink straight from the bottle, it's not really drinking. So if I had <laughs> high alcohol beer, And supplemented with shots from a bottle because it went straight from the bottle into my mouth and not a glass. Those didn't count as drinks.
0: (laughs) You're just saving a step, Pete. uh,
2: So,
1: I mean, it was just, you know, all the ridiculous things that it it didn't matter. And I even tried the, uh, I'm aware that this could be a problem for me, so it won't be. And, yeah, I, I tried anything. Yeah, all ended up the same place.
0: And so you're 38 years old. When did you realize that you might have a problem with alcohol, Pete?
1: I would say I've probably always known or at least had the fear. I remember even as I grew up and still am Catholic, but I served as a kid, like in second grade, we would serve mass in the morning mm-hmm. and I would, after mass, I would go to the back and drink wine that was there and go back to class in second grade.
2: Uh I don't know where
1: that was normal in second grade because the people I was serving with would be like, what are you doing? And I don't remember getting drunk, but I remember having the impulse to go ahead and want to drink some of that wine before I went back and not even knowing what that was. And then all throughout college, I mean, there was no healthy drinking for me throughout college and high school. Even in high school, I could drink a case of beer when we went out with friends, when other people were drinking six beers. And I, again, it was that weird ego inflation where I thought that was cool as opposed to a problem, but I knew that it wasn't good. And that's when I'd have rules then. Like, so, okay, I won't drink during the week, which I don't know if a normal high school person thinks that, but that was even justification that I started back in high school as a way to control things.
0: <laughs> Did you have rules in place when you were an acolyte serving people at a Catholic mass? Like, Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm only going to drink if there's wafers available.
1: (laughs) I believe probably, I mean, I, well, I had a rule that I had to wait till after mass when everyone else was gone. So even the secret Uh, of drinking, I guess, started pretty early. That might
0: be my favorite rule in place I've ever heard on this podcast. I love it, Pete. (laughs) That's, that's awesome. And so, you know, it's. It sounds like you know. You, you that's a huge red flag that you know you might have a drinking problem is if you're just putting any rule in place and we can trace this back to when you're in second grade. But, you know, when if you had to pinpoint like, okay, this gig might be up, I need to quit drinking. When was that in your timeline?
1: When. I was trying to substitute anything else for it. I went through several phases where I had uh, eating disorder. And I even knew at that point when I was doing some issues and not eating as much that I was trying to focus my attention to that. And I knew internally that I was not eating as a way to mask, not dealing with drinking and things like that. So, I mean, I would say probably six years ago is when all that really started and it became pretty unavoidable. And we had had a couple of miscarriages
2: uh-huh.
1: in a row and some things that happened. And it became clear my coping was terrible. And I, that's when I quit really trying too hard to even act like it wasn't a problem. I didn't have any willingness to do anything about it except half-heartedly disguise it with some other stuff.
0: And what do you, what do you mean by that when you said I didn't have any willingness to do anything about the problem but to half-heartedly disguise it with other stuff? Can you expand a little bit more on that?
1: Yeah, that's when I would do some uh, like hyper focusing. Like I lost over six month period, close to like fifty pounds. Wow! And what I was doing was just not not eating at all. And even though drinking at that point for me wasn't as bad as it was at other times, where I wasn't consuming as much. But it was. It's clear to me now, looking back at it, what I was doing is protecting that. I was protecting my terrible coping by putting a focus on my terrible eating habits. So when my family had an intervention with me at that point, that I still had that alcohol crutch in the background.
0: Sure. Yeah. You're playing a pretty good card too. You're like, look, I'm, I'm dealing with the eating thing right now. You know, and if, I've heard a lot of times and I witnessed this firsthand is that the, the alcohol is the last thing to go. And is it, was that the same case with you?
1: Yep. Yeah, it was the last thing, but I guess on the bright side with that, at that point, I didn't even want to hold on to it anymore. It was, I was done. So it was the last thing, but you know, if it was the first thing, I don't know that I would be where I was today, because I'd probably still be trying to hold on to it. So fell in the right order for me at that time.
0: Yeah, and when you say you were done, was that 488 days ago when you came to that conclusion, or was this something that you realized I'm done? Which you know sounds like the gift of desperation. There's a lot of us. Get to a moment, including myself, where you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you're done. You, you, you simply can't move forward anymore. You're done fighting. And was that on, you know, uh, February 17, 2016, or was that before that? Did you try to get sober for a while before that?
1: No, there was some half-hearted excuses, but I don't know that I was tired enough. Um, there were a combination of things like 490 days ago, 489 days ago, where it really started to set in. Uh, One of the things was I, my depression was starting to get real bad, but you know, I'd come off not eating. My nutrition was terrible. My alcohol was up. So my anxiety was up. Mm -hmm. My depression was up and the thought of suicide started rolling into my head and going to bed and not waking up. Being raised Catholic in my youth, I used to teach that, you know, suicide meant that there was no salvation in heaven for you which has changed at this point, but that was still a thing that was lingering in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And also I was worried as crazy as it is at that time about my life insurance and my family being supported if I killed myself. So like on that day, I thought, man, I can't do that. So I kind of ruled it off the table. So it was kind of a weird moment of sanity in the middle of insanity, even though I've learned that logic isn't correct at all, (laughs) but it was still enough to save me. But it seemed logical at the time.
0: So it was was like suicide is not an option. I I need to quit drinking. Is that what it sounds like I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, I I just, I knew I couldn't keep doing it. I didn't want to do it. It Everything was just too much. I knew that the option I thought I had in my head wasn't there in suicide. And I couldn't maintain what I was doing any longer. So making a drastic change of everything in my life was the only option that was available
0: you don't have to change much pete you just have to change everything aka a drastic change now was was it a bottom that you experienced or was it something you were just done you're just tired of it you couldn't go on any longer
1: it was i would say like a spiritual bottom for me things that were important were no longer important like i have a great life. i have great kids i've had a good job my wife has a good job i've bought a truck that I thought I always wanted and all those things weren't making me happy. So it was the compilation of doing these things that, you know, I've been taught make me happy and just not getting there that way and knowing spiritually, I wasn't getting there. And I guess it kind of, there's a story I'm part of the 12 step group. And one of the stories talks about the the skid row of success. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I mean, I'm not the most successful guy. There's people with tons more money, but I would consider my life pretty successful in the business world. And that's kind of, it led me down the spiritual emptiness. So I was bankrupt spiritually and emotionally and like my breaking point, as oddly as it may be, I consider it a rock bottom, but some might not. I was inside drinking. My wife and daughter went outside, both knowing I was drunk, at least my wife did at that point. Mm-hmm. They went outside to ride a bike. It was a nice day in February in Ohio. They had to change the seat level because my daughter had grown over the winter. And they ended up not riding bikes because when my wife opened the workbench to lift the seat on her bike and adjust it, the drawer was full of empty booze bottles and full booze bottles, which Hmm. broke her heart. Yeah, And I could hear it because I was sitting on a couch and the workbench was in the garage behind me on that wall. And it was like that moment was in my head, I knew, like, I ruined their day. I ruined everything. And with the elimination of realizing, like, ending my life wasn't a possibility and realizing all the pain that I had done, I walked outside and I could look at my wife and daughter. No words needed to be exchanged to see the devastation, especially on my wife's face. And all the things that I'd been doing, like, just built up at that moment. And there was nowhere lower. Like, I had no... No escape of anything at that point. And that was my bottom. That was the moment that made me change everything. And
0: was that right around February 21st, 2016?
1: Yes, it was. That was February 21st. And then that night, I decided that'd be my last day drinking. And then he good drunk. I proceeded to finish every drop (laughs) of alcohol that I could find in my house. You have to. By 11:59, so I could declare that was my last day, and I made a promise myself.
0: Was was that by coincidence, or did you, was, was that like a strong, solid number?
1: <laughs> oh, that was a strong, solid number. I remember standing there with my beer, watching the clock at 11:59, having committed earlier that day that this would be the last day that I drink. Watching it, saying I got to finish this beer before the clock turns, so I know this is my last day.
0: Uh, we alcoholics do some strange things, but I, I love it. Yeah. You'd be, if not, you had to, you had to go whole another 24 hours and not get that day. I love it. And you know, it sounds like you're a high bottom drunk, Pete. It is, but it's all relative. That moment at the same time sounds extremely painful and the pain points were enough to cause you change. You probably saw, you looked in your daughter's eyes and your wife's eyes and you noticed that the gig is up. Like this and suicide is not an option. I have to make a change, and and how did you make that change, Pete? Did you just wake up the next day and, and just not drink? Did you go to a twelve-step meeting? You, how would you do this?
1: I woke up the next day, looking around online at stuff, and after our kids went to bed, I talked to the wife and said it's time. I'm going to uh, get some professional help to stop this because we had talked a little bit about my drinking habits stopping and a lot of this binge drinking I was doing and we agreed that yeah professional help would be good so I decided to call a couple treatment facilities one local to me decided to let me in so I thought I'd go and see if they would take me into the program and meet with them and oddly enough to my shock I was kind of surprised that they thought I was a fit candidate and they would receive me into the treatment facility right away. So I spent two months in an outpatient program, at a facility to stop. And then uh, during that same time, I also I knew I was sick. So I went to a therapist, a psychologist, I had my counselor at the facility, I had two months of outpatient treatment, as well as just surrounding myself with a lot of sober people and getting involved in yoga and exploring as many spiritual avenues as possible.
0: Now, what was the outpatient treatment like? Walk us through a typical day of that.
1: The program I went to is a state certified program for the state of Ohio. It's where like all the doctors and attorneys and stuff that are certified, one of the only places they can go to get their license back. Mm -hmm. So during the day you would show up, you would do some like emotional inventory type stuff first thing in the morning. You would have some group sessions. And then we would go and actually have college level addiction courses where we talked about like brain chemistry. And to my surprise, like a lot of these doctors and nurses that were in my program, this was the most education any of them had had on addiction and alcoholism.
0: I knew the 100% For certainty those, you were going to say that.
1: Yeah. These, I mean, they didn't know. These are people in the industry, a disease that's recognized by the field. And these. Doctors, great doctors, some of them nationally known from around the country, would come into this facility. And I mean, unbelievable that the, they sat there and they learned with me everything about the disease and the disease model and how it worked.
0: But they weren't necessarily so was, in recovery themselves. They, they, for, they were there to get their licenses back,
1: you said? They were in recovery, yes. Oh, okay. They had been reported or had an issue. So they were all suffering as well from the disease. So we were in recovery together.
0: Oh, okay. And they're they're sitting there in the classroom listening to the lectures and they're just like, Well, no shit. I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah,
1: this one all brand new. Yeah, the people with PhDs and I mean, it was just interesting to see how level the playing field was, regardless of education, background, and profession, especially in this facility that I or the treatment center that I went. To.
0: Despite the fact that, you know, addiction is you know, the opioid epidemic, you know, but alcohol kills three times as many people each year as, as, as the other drugs combined, you know, we are in a public crisis right now with addiction. There's, I've said this on the podcast of, in 2014, there's 140 med schools and only 14 had one class on addiction. It's, it's mind blowing of how uncapable and, you know, untrained, you know, they lack the training to, to deal with people in addiction. And, you know, and did you feel like the counselors there had plenty of knowledge on this topic, though?
1: Yeah, the place I was at, the counselors were great. My specific counselor had like 32 years in recovery. Two of the other counselors there were not in recovery themselves. But the facility I was at, it was awesome. They exposed you to different types of continuing recovery. I went to aftercare, which was like a weekly two-hour long extension of recovery for a year. That is part of their program, but you have to maintain sobriety. And if you don't, you go back in because that just means you need more treatment. I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate to get in there. I think the reason I got into the facility I did is because it was so tough per se. I mean, because of the level and the people that go there and the things that they need to get their license back, that it really kind of exploded me through the recovery process and really taught me a lot. And everyone there was awesome.
0: Now, what is what is something you learned in one of those addiction classes, you're saying college level addiction courses, What what is one of the, what is one something that still stands out in your mind that you learned?
1: You know, one of the things is the basic, like this programming that we've done. And when people talk about alcohol, like being the medicine that it's the one, it's the cure all medicine for whatever was ailing me and other people at the, you know, at that time, because your dopamine start flushing, then you have backup dopamines in your system, and you've trained your brain so that as the pleasure sensors and everything run out, it, it, it doesn't matter at that point because the disease is in full function and you're feeding an endless cycle that knowledge alone can't break. Mm-hmm. So even as we learn this, there's so much more that has to go into practice to cure and change all these habits and things. That we do so you can't just go in that class or into a facility or into a 12-step program or whatever and just go, okay, I got the knowledge, it's cool. I'll it. <laughs> I mean, it is it's hard work that has to be done. And I mean, it just doesn't matter who you are, the knowledge isn't enough, the practice has to be done, and we are literally rewiring our systems for you know this one thing that was the cure for happiness, sadness discouragement yet to the point where we've tricked our brains and flushed our systems, of what we need. And we're still trying to do it. That it's a whole rewiring process.
0: Pete, I feel like you, you just summarized a a big component of recovery is, you know, knowledge. I've said it before is, is knowledge is is not power unless you do something with it. And there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, you could read every recovery book that's ever been published, but until you start doing things that you don't want to do, the rubber's not going to hit the road. And you know, explain to listeners how important it is to actually take the action.
1: Well, it's like anything else. yeah, the action has to be done. I mean, if I would like to run a marathon, I don't get up and run a marathon tomorrow, and recovery's no different. It's these small practices you have to start doing it to get to the end goal. So every day, if you want to run a marathon, you run a little more and you train. Mm-hmm. Recovery's the same way. And like one of the things I do in recovery, And I, this is kind of a breakthrough for me as of recently, I'm big on mindfulness. And as I quit drinking, one of the things I started doing was eating ice cream sandwiches. But that's part of that sugar supplement. And as I tried to wean myself off, I tried to use mindfulness and I talked to my therapist and I'd take a bite and I'd mindfully think about eating this ice cream sandwich. And it was ridiculous because I would convince myself, boy, this bite's delicious. This bite has a little bit of cookie, M&M, and then all of a sudden, now, and I could eat like three or four in a row thinking mindfully how good it was, but as I've built on that,
0: I'm eating mindfully. Then, yeah,
1: now I look at it and go, oh, I'm consuming sugar, and yeah. that practice just expands, so now I can mindfully eat that sandwich and comprehend what it's doing to my body, but I had to start and be willing to look at it regardless of how ridiculous those practices seemed at first to get there and that's just mindfulness is the way i do it and you know if you've played football or whatever we know in the game of football you just don't chop your feet up and down but that's part of practice because it takes those little tiny pieces to put together a good program a good team whatever it is so without those actions we just don't have anything we're just stuck imagining and we're exactly where we were. So the practice and doing those things, is, it's everything. Because if not, I'm still sitting on the couch drinking, listening to my wife and daughter not be able to ride bikes because they can't dig through my alcohol bottles in mm. the workbench to get the tools they need to fix the seat.
0: And Pete, what have you learned most about yourself in these past 488 days?
1: Most? Oh, wow. I've learned so many different things. i I learned that I like peace, calm, and serenity, but I accepted chaos, because that's what I knew, so I thought that's what I like, but I actually like stuff to go well, and my (laughs) life is really, really good, but I made it really bad by a lot of choices I made, so I've learned, yeah, life's good, I've got everything I need, I'm happy for it, and uh, I can keep living every day, and that's pretty awesome.
0: Now, Pete, I can tell that an underlying theme in your recovery is present and in the moment. And when I, in the first minute of the podcast, you use the word "clear," and talk to me about how you can be present in the moment and you have a clear state of mind, and how important that is, and how cool that is in recovery.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the yeah, the first time I realized like the importance of being present is you know when I was drinking, I I would hurry up and get my kids to bed, then my wife would go to sleep so I could get downstairs and then I could drink the way I wanted to drink. And what I didn't realize is I missed all these bonding moments with my kids of sitting in their bed, reading to my daughter, listening to her laugh at the stories, listening to her put character voices. And if I'm not in that moment with her, I'm missing that moment and I'm missing everything. And I have to have a clear, calm head to be there. If I'm worried about all the static, if I'm worried about politics, if I'm worried about what my neighbor's doing to a tree or a bush that I may like that they're taking out or a bush they're putting in that I don't like or a dog that they have or listening to all this other static, but what's not there, I'm missing out Mm. on everything. And, you know, I go into a lot of different meetings and sometimes you hear some pretty... Dumb sayings, but there's one that I couldn't stand at first, but it's so simple and it sounds stupid, but it's right. You know, they say that you got one foot on tomorrow and one on yesterday. You end up pissing on today.
2: Yeah, like, I like a that
1: vulgar, one. dumb thing to say, Yeah, but it's kind of like a gross uh, Buddhist saying in a way. It's simple, but true and oddly, really smart at the same time. And that's where clarity gets. I don't have to worry about that. I get to enjoy the day. I get, you know, this morning I got up, I went to work, I stopped. We're talking now and I'm still way more productive, clear and happier than I ever was doing what I thought I wanted to do all the time when I was drinking. And I just need that clear mind to see that.
0: Absolutely. Um, That, you know, one day at a time is one of those things where, you know, I lived it religiously at first, then about a year into recovery, I was like, oh, that's stupid. But no, I'm I'm actually back with that because, sure, I'm taking it one day at a time with my drinking, but I'm not so volatile in my recovery where it's it's like I'm only taking it one hour, one day at a time with the drinking. But with a lot of other aspects of my life, I am taking it one day at a time because yesterday's gone, tomorrow isn't even here yet, and I'm really only worried and thinking about what I'm doing right now. And right now, I'm chatting with a cool dude named Pete. We're both recovering as we speak and like you mentioned, life's pretty good. It's a hell of a lot better now in recovery. And I want to ask you a question about cravings, Pete. You know, in 488 days, have you had cravings and, you know, do they still come? What would you, Did you have a lot more in the beginning? And what did you do to overcome them?
1: Yeah, my cravings, I would say as of today are more, I would like a drink, not as much a craving. Like if it's a habitual thing, like if I would go to a ball game and my mind would go towards a... Beer at a ball game, or if there, yeah, you know, I was a craft beer drinker. So this time of year, seasonal beers start coming out. And I think about that, but I would consider those more thoughts than cravings. But at the beginning, beginning I would actually, yeah, I would have physical cravings. And a lot of those kind of go back to that thought of alcohol was the medicine that fixed everything for me. Mm-hmm. So if, if there was a stressful situation, I'd have that impulse to drink and I could actually physically feel it. In the way I kind of dealt with those cravings was, again, me using mindfulness. And I would go from instead of thinking about wanting that drink to, okay, at this point, I can actually feel a tingle in my back, my <clears throat> stomach in a knot, and switching it from thinking about the beer to what those actual physical cravings felt like. And actually writing notes, which takes you away from your brain's thought to take that substance or chemical and put it in your body to change the way you're feeling. Instead, you're using your mind to change the focus of those feelings. I mean, it is exhausting, but so was drinking. So I mean, it was very good for me and it worked for me. And I still do it now when I'm stressed. That really was my biggest tool to alleviate cravings and things like that was just to take a really mindful, mindfully scientific approach and just physically break it down. Sure. And just doing that and looking at myself was enough that the cravings would pass.
0: And pen to paper is an action. And oftentimes when we get cravings, action is the hardest thing we can do. You know, just just willing it out, doing the willpower method is, is oftentimes brutal and exhausting. But taking action, which is hard to do, once we start that action, it helps out a lot. And Pete, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Ready. <laughs> Ready. All right. Number one, Pete, what was your worst memory from drinking?
1: The experience with my wife and daughter going out and not being able to ride bikes because of my booze hidden in the drawer.
0: Hidden in the drawer. Yeah, that was a tough moment. And but it's that pain that pushed you forward in recovery. Um, and next question, Pete, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating you really can't control your drinking and let's let's go fast forward from the second grade moment as an acolyte and be in the with Catholic service
1: uh, um for me it was was when my mother in law she died from alcoholism huh. And when we were literally in the nursing home and she was taking her last breath. my biggest thought was. How do I get out of here and have a drink and come back without people noticing?
0: Yep, priorities a little shifted, and I've, yeah. been, I've been there before. And Pete, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Continue to be present in the moment and uh, doing, not thinking about things that I don't do, then regretting it. Because for me, regret and that martyrdom attitude all uh, leads to a lot of shame and guilt and that leads me back to a bad place. So I've got to live. I've got to be present. And no matter how bad want to do nothing, I need to get up and do something. And as long as it's the best I got for that day, that's good. I just need to do the best I can. And every day, the best changes. But as long as I'm doing my best, I'm doing good.
0: And Pete, what's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: Uh, for me, it is meditation and prayer.
0: Do you use an app for meditation? What does that look like?
1: For me, I've used the Headspace app because I've talked about it. I also use meditation classes and I go to yoga for it. I have, there's like a meditation guru that lives in our village and that was practiced Buddhism for a long time. So I use several, several different meditation means just to always improve my practice. Sometimes it is no more than just focusing on breathing to clear my head. And sometimes it's, just letting my head do everything it has to do without judgment and letting things run through it. So Hmm. my meditation practice changes based on my needs for the day.
0: And in regards to sobriety, Pete, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, the best advice I have ever received is follow direction. It was the hardest advice for me to listen to, but just following direction and putting faith in a process.
0: Putting faith in a blind process at times, right?
1: Yes, in a blind process, because it was proven my process does not work.
0: Uh-huh. And then Pete, what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are thinking about getting sober or are in recovery?
1: Uh, the thing that was good for me to hear, and it was very helpful when I was around a lot of people in early recovery with me, is that you're feeling the way you're supposed to be feeling at that time and we have to go through periods and just talk to other people because I would feel really, really guilty for feeling bad or depressed and it was normal. My feelings were normal and they were strange and it was normal that they were strange and it's okay to relearn. I have a two-year-old son. I matured mentally along with my son. My progression was like a two-year-old's when I started recovery.
0: Sure. As was mine.
1: It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be confused. Those things are normal. It's okay to go with it. You don't need to fix everything. Sometimes you just have to learn what it feels like.
0: And Pete, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line.
1: You might be an alcoholic if when you walk out of your recovery center and you see one of your friends that you've been partying with forever. And he goes, hey, Pete. I was surprised to see you here. And then I thought about it and it's really not much of a surprise at all to see you here.
0: <laughs> and then I thought about it. I'm like, wow, what took you so long? <laughs> right. That's awesome. No. Well, Pete, yeah. thank you so much for joining us on the recovery elevator podcast. Thanks for helping me stay sober today. Have a great afternoon.
1: Thanks Paul. and Thanks everyone out there.
0: Now, Pete makes a lot of great points in his interview, and I want to explore a couple of these in more depth. The first one that I'd like to cover is that he feels more clear in sobriety. If I could summarize my sobriety, my time without alcohol on this planet Earth, it can be summarized as being more clear, present, and in the moment. When I was drinking, and it sounds like with Pete is the same, that it's difficult to be under the sun just as it is meant to be at that moment in time. We're always thinking about yesterday, thinking about tomorrow. But with recovery, I've been given the gift, as well as Pete, of just being clear and present in the moment. Next up, Pete says he likes to golf. He talks about how he enjoys golf more sober. Sure, there's still a lot of frustration and anger associated with golf, but he's actually golfing. Now, let's explore this a little bit more. Actually enjoying golf. A lot of people get out to golf to, well, golf and drink. He's actually doing what the sport is. He's golfing. And I've been golfing before, and I'm looking at the scorecard, and I'm saying, what is the fourth hole, fifth hole? Gosh, after the ninth hole, then there's the, there's the snack bar. Where in the hell is the damn beverage cart girl or guy? I could use a drink right now. Again, you're not clear. You're not in the moment. You're not focused on hole four. You're focused on making the turn around to the snack bar. Now, how many activities have we done? That is just like golf. We're not there fully present in the moment when we're hanging out with our friends, our family, our loved ones. We're not fully there, but we're thinking about when the next drink is going to come. Okay, let's take a look at the interview, and I asked Pete if he knew he had a problem with alcohol. He responds with, I'd always known or had the fear that he had a problem with alcohol. I love how he says, I'd always known or had the fear that I had a problem with alcohol. Looking back with my journey, I was about eight years ahead of the curve when I look back. I knew for a long time in my early 20s that I knew that I was gonna have to quit drinking one day. The writing wasn't clear on the wall at the moment, but looking back, it was clear. That, But there was this fear that I was one day gonna have to quit drinking. And Pete went through the exact same thing. That fear that deep down inside, you know you're not gonna have to change much, but you're probably gonna have to change everything. And getting sober is tough. And it's this fear that you're gonna have to change a lot of things in your life. Now, there's another time in the interview when Pete mentions where he's trying to substitute anything else for the alcohol problem. He talks about his eating disorder. Personally, I can relate to this. In fact, I'm still dealing with this stuff in recovery. And I'm making that final push into recovery as I record this podcast episode. I remember before I got sober, going into the doctor saying, Hey, I think I'm depressed. Okay, well, let's take some antidepressants. The problem was I was hungover. I wasn't depressed. The exact same thing with ADD meds. Hey, doc, I can't focus on anything. Ooh, well, let's get you on some ADD meds. Problem was, I was hungover as shit, and I couldn't focus on anything because of that. So right now, as I mentioned, I'm still trying to make that final push in recovery because the problem was alcohol. It wasn't depression. It wasn't ADD. And it sounds like Pete went through the same thing with this. There was a lot of other things that could be the problem, but at the end of the day, it was alcohol. I'm so happy for Pete that he's got 488 days while he's addressing the core issue, which is alcohol. I love it when Pete mentions making a drastic change. Here's the deal. Not everybody's willing to make drastic changes, and that's what recovery entails. Getting sober requires making drastic changes that you probably don't want to make. Drastic changes, they aren't easy. Wearing wovens instead of flannel shirts, that's not a drastic change. Switching from Comcast to CenturyLink, that's not a drastic change. And here's the definition of drastic, likely to have a stronger, far-reaching effect, radical or extreme. I'm going to repeat that part again, likely to have a far-reaching effect. Now, this is an investment. Now, most of the drastic changes that we make to get sober, they're not going to yield much by Tuesday. They're not going to yield much tomorrow or the day after. But it's this blind leap of faith that will continue to pay off dividends months, years down the road. Now, Pete knows that change is not easy. It's oftentimes not fun. It's comprised of doing things we don't want to do. Yeah, we could go hang with the boys at the tavern, throw down a couple or 20, or we could decide to quit drinking and not sleep for the first 100 hours. Yeah, on paper, that's an easy decision to make. I'm going to go hang with the boys at the tavern. But getting sober is a much harder option that will yield the much better dividends further down the road. Another thing I want to comment on from Pete's interview is he learned that you're feeding an endless addiction. That knowledge alone cannot change. It's the hard work that must be done. Pete has been sober for 488 days because he has done the hard work. He mentions a marathon analogy, which we are accustomed to. The marathon analogy is we can't expect our mind, body, and spirit to go out and run a marathon without any training at all. The exact same thing is applicable in recovery. If we were to run a marathon with no training at all, we wouldn't be baffled or surprised when we just fall down on our knees at mile 12. That would almost be expected, and in fact, we'd be surprised we even made it that far. But when it comes to quitting drinking, we're often baffled, surprised, and completely blindsided when we only make it four days. We've got to put in the work. We've got to work on our program. We've got to stay connected, and most importantly, we cannot do this alone. So those were some of the key things that I took away from Pete's interview. Again, Pete, thank you for doing the interview. And I apologize, I didn't plug in my microphone. When I listened to it, it didn't sound that bad, but I could have sounded better, but that's okay. Lesson 78 in recovery, you got to be okay with just okay. So, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.